0: Here I am banana banana rocking like a Herman Cain! Peas, 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 eating goober peas. Goodness, how delicious, eating goober peas. We love the goober peas, don't we, folks? We love to eat a goober pea! It's the best! You go, you take them, you put them in your mouth, you march through Georgia with your goober peas! Anyone remembers that? probably don't. That was a Civil War marching song about peanuts. That's how unentertained people were back there. They had to sing songs about goddamn peanuts. How sad. Can you imagine? How bizarre. How bizarre. So today we're going to talk about the first chapter of Reconstruction, but before we start, just do a little, how you doing everybody? Don't worry. If anybody didn't do the reading, it's no big deal. The first chapter uh, is mostly setting the stage. It starts with the Emancipation Proclamation, the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. And it's uh, essentially focuses on the way that the Civil War had broken apart American society. How it was exposing and intensifying friction points between elements of the social order uh, and most importantly, creating new formations and new relationships between them. That's, that's what uh, that chapter is really about. Before you've even gotten to the end of the war. Uh, and what Foner does is he basically goes through the North and the South and examines the uh, ways that the different broad social groupings of the North and the South, had been changed by the war, starting, of course, uh, with the slaves, uh, who, by 1863, had begun in huge numbers to uh, resist plantation authority, to flee to Union lines whenever they have a chance, uh, and to, in general, withdraw their labor from uh, the Confederate war effort. This is what uh, Du Bois, I know, calls in his book General Strike. That's how he frames it. Uh, And that what Foner is getting at here most importantly is that this is an assertion in the context of the war uh, of, like, black uh, freedom and and, uh, an assertion of uh, black rights uh, and a demand for not only the end of slavery but the end of the the social caste system that had emerged. Uh, And on the other hand, the non-plantation-owning white population of the South, uh, at the same time that this was happening, at the same time as, as slaves were sort of rebelling and resisting slavery and aiding the Union Army, uh, the upcountry, as they're known, southern whites, the poor, subsistence, largely subsistence farmers of uh, the Appalachians, but and, and essentially anywhere... Uh, of mountainous terrain where plantation agriculture and the hegemonic culture that plantation agriculture created couldn't sustain itself. And in those places, resistance to the Confederacy was always relatively high and got higher over the course of the war as the Confederacy uh, asked more and more of smallholders, of poor whites, and less and less of uh, the rich plantation owner class. Uh, the, the South instituted a draft before the North did. It exempted, before the North it had its $100 man policy, it exempted owners of slaves, I believe more than 20 slaves, from conscription. And uh, most interestingly and importantly, I think, uh, the interests of individual slave owners... Came to conflict with the interests of the Confederate uh, cause, because there was money to be made from dealing cotton and other materials to the Yankee invader, which was too much of a temptation for many Southern uh, uh, Southern plantation owners to resist. Meanwhile, the poor upcountry whites were. The, the vast majority of the uh, military, they were, they were, they were the, 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 the cannon fodder of the war, uh, and they were also uh, asked to pay the lion's share of taxation and suffer the most, the ones who stayed home, uh, uh, due to shortages in food. There were bread riots throughout the South. There's a, the most famous one was in Richmond, but they were all over the South. And this led to uh, wide, wide-scale sabotage, re- uh, draft resistance, uh, and union sentiment uh, in the upcountry of the South. Now, that did not translate to some sort of solidarity with slavery, uh, with slaves, because uh, in many cases uh, upcountry Southerners blamed blacks for slavery as much as they blamed uh, the owners of blacks for slavery. Uh, And I just, there's one quote from, that Foner uh, puts in here from a Methodist circuit-riding preacher in uh, eastern Tennessee, which was a hotbed of anti-Confederate sentiment because it was mountainous. Uh, And in fact, if it hadn't been for the quick deployment of Confederate troops to uh, root out Unionist sentiment and hang Unionist leaders, there's a good chance that eastern Tennessee could have seceded from Tennessee the same way that western Virginia did earlier in the war. Uh, which, by the way, West Virginia uh, being able to secede from the Confederacy and become its own state, that was the one site of, of uh, the war where uh, McClellan was able to uh, distinguish himself at all. That's where he got his early reputation was in securing Western Virginia, which allowed it to secede from the Confederacy. That, would, that, that could have happened in eastern Tennessee, uh, except for the the Confederate Army, which came in and started hanging people without due process because they love liberty so much. But uh, what this this preacher, this anti-Confederate uh, youth pro-Union preacher, William Brownlow, said, that he wished to arm every wolf, panther, catamount, and bear in the mountains of America, every rattlesnake and crocodile, every devil in hell, and turn them loose upon the Confederacy. I just... And that's the way that, like people who now all have Confederate fucking flag shit on their houses and, and their shirts and stuff. That's how people at that point felt about the Confederacy. Because you're always most aware of the exploitation uh, being perpetrated by those uh, nearest you. And then and that hostility between the upcountry and the plantation regions, that had predated the war, and it was ex- exacerbated and intensified by the war. Uh, and Foner notes this just to say once again that this is a moment of profound friction and conflict and change. The relationship people have to their government, to the institutions that they have taken for granted is in flux. Uh, and then in the North, uh, Foner p- p- talks about the way that uh, anti-union sentiment was to be found not only among uh Uh, the butternut regions of Southern Ohio and Illinois and Indiana, which were filled with people who had migrated from Tennessee and Kentucky and Virginia and who had slave sympathies, slave, uh, slavery sympathies, but also among the urban Irish immigrants. And the draft riot of 1863 is a big example of that. And in this case, you have people who are being asked to fight for a union that they do not feel that they are being... Uh, uh, benefited by that, uh, and to defeat a system that they do not find to be a threat to them, uh, and there is one interesting distinction, though, which is that uh, while the northern, where the Confederate uh, elite found themselves in a situation where their narrow self-interest was often in conflict with the, self, the, the collective interest of the Confederacy, the Confederate project. In the North, being if you had access to capital, and you were in any way in industry, uh, your self-interest was in fully supporting the labor, the, uh, the war effort, because that's where the money came from. Uh, the, the, the Northern economy was completely revolutionized by the injection of a vast amount of liquid currency, fiat currency, into the economic system uh, in a country which had not had, at any point before that, a national currency. That's the thing to remember, is that before the Civil War, there was not a lot of currency in circulation in a lot of parts of this country, especially farther away from cities. And places where there was currency, it was issued by banks, which had charters from the government allowing them to, uh, to... To issue currency backed by a reserve of gold that they held. Um, And in order to fight the war, the uh, United States created greenbacks, which were backed by nothing other than America's force and uh, which injected, which created an explosion of economic uh, activity. It was incredibly beneficial to uh, Northern agriculture, but was uh and also about, uh was very beneficial to people who held debt who were uh in debt to financial institutions because they could pay back with cheap money that which they borrowed with dear money uh but for for workers for that burgeoning class of wage laborers inflation cut into their uh uh their Actual income; it, it, they saw a real drop in a drop in real wages over the course of the war, which was one of the things that exacerbated hostility to the war effort itself. <sighs> and so, in pointing this out, Foner is saying these systems are. In flux, and more than anything, we are seeing one system be destroyed and another defeat uh, victorious. Uh, the contradictions within them both contributing to their victory and the, 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 to the defeat. Uh, and if anybody, I mean, honestly, I don't think there's any case to be made that there is a moral... But you could say that there is a moral superiority in any sense to to the Jeffersonian small government model as it ended up being practiced in the South. Because one of the big things that kept those poor whites so poor is that there was very little taxation or infrastructure or or public education of any kind in the South, which is one of the things that actually paradoxically allowed for the uh, tension between poor whites and plantation economy to remain latent. Was because not a lot was asked of poor people. There was a very little taxation in the first place, uh, and that and that allowed the state to sort of be seen as you know not an interdicting fact in people's lives. But the reality of that, then, that ended up being that people were stuck in a pretty much a permanent condition of poverty uh, that they could not overcome. That they could that the ladder of uh, improvement that like Whiggish model in the North allowed for was totally uh, off the chart, off the table for poor southern whites. But that was not, because it was not the result of uh, explicit policy, but rather the lack of policy, it was not necessarily directly tied to, uh, tied in the minds of, you know, poor whites to uh, the state itself, to the the powers itself. That changed though, when taxes started going up to pay for the war, and conscription started to send people to fight the war. And then in the North, you have this new industrial economy ex- spinning up into existence in order to fight the war and defeat the Confederacy. Uh, and in so doing, creating, one, the huge expansion of the concept of rights, the concept of liberty in America uh, in a positive direction instead of the notion of you know, negative rights that had predominated in the constitutional, in the early federal era. Uh, because of you know the 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 fact that there there was a war on that was over the course of the war more and more identified with the cause of human freedom, but to fight that war and to win and to win that war and to create the economy that could do so, it ended up uh concentrating economic power in the halls of uh finance and and um, among this new class of captains of industry, these new industrial leaders. Uh, and who, who would use that power to guarantee, to assert, assure the, for themselves that whatever political uh, reality emerged from the war, it would be one that would take as its basic premise the inviability of private property, the inviability of, uh, of the financial sector, uh, and of the wage relationship. More than anything, Foner in this chapter is saying that, is pointing out the the points of friction, conflict, and opportunity, and uh, I think more than anything emphasizing the fluidity of the situation, and that fluidity, which in retrospect can often appear to be predetermined because... You look at a situation, and it often does become difficult to see where anything different could have happened. But the reality of the war is that so many established forms were breaking up, that um, that what came after was really contingent. And over the course of the book, we're going to find out exactly how those contingencies solidified into reality. Uh, oh, but I was off track for a second. I was talking about how. I don't think there is a moral, there is no argument you can make morally that the plantation system that emerged in the South out of the Jeffersonian notion of small government was in any way superior to the Northern Federalist slash Whig notion of internal improvements and central authority. So if there is no moral uh, superiority there, and even like stipulating, let's stipulate that the federalist free system isn't even better. I mean, I, I don't think that's true. I think if you have slavery in your system, it's inherently worse. But forget that. Say they're fine. So, or Say they're equivalently immoral because they're equivalent in that they are systems of class oppression. They are systems of extraction of surplus from one group of people for the enjoyment of another. That's the case in both systems. The mechanisms, the social forms are different, but that's the reality of both of them. And then they went to war with one another. And one of them, at every point, all of the things that were supposed to be virtues of the system ended up undermining the ability of the state to defend itself. Whereas in the North, every system, every element of the system combined to make this, uh system into a more effective fighting force, into a more effective defender and exerter of its... State uh, prerogative and if morals are out the out of the door then the, the which one was better to me is solved. Hamilton was right Jefferson was wrong. the war the Civil War proved it. You can't say one was morally superior to another or that one system had a, uh, had, a, had a superior respect for individual freedom or rights or liberty or any of that bullshit. neither of them did. They're both systems of securing class rule. One of them secured it effectively. One of them secured it hilariously ineffectively and was essentially subsidized by the other until it could no longer sustain it, until that relationship couldn't sustain itself, at which point it was destroyed by the other. But that conflict had to be resolved through force because both sides had enough. Uh, had enough access to land and enough access to capital to build essentially competing social structures within a fantasy of a, of a national government, which had a constitutional system that was designed to sublimate conflict until it could no longer be sublimated any longer. At which point, conflict became uh, overt, and boom, the North won. Did Larry Flint really die? Damn. RIP. RIP to a real one. Are they going to roll his dead ass uh, into a volcano or something? That'd be pretty funny. So if anybody has any questions about what was in the first chapter, we could go over them a little bit. Otherwise, we'll really get into it, I think, next week. I'm going to do two chapters, and I'm going to, for that one, I'm going to, like, take notes and everything and go through them. This time I didn't really do that. Uh... The thing about the American system is that it is designed to sublimate all... I mean, and this is true of all democratic, governing, deliberative uh, institutions, is that they are designed to mystify and baffle and sublimate conflict away from uh, from reality and into into sort of performance. But the ability to keep doing that is really just predicated on It's not predicated on anything intrinsic to the system. It's not predicated on the values that the system inculcates. It's premised on the uh, ability of the system to ameliorate conflict materially. And in America, that has always been the ability to uh, to offload issues, offload social conflict through the uh, assimilation of land uh, and the distribution of uh, resources through expropriation here and then globally. That that's been always it. And and the current conflict we are in is that we have reached the point of where expropriation has has become diminishing, where we have a diminishing returns for expropriation, and that, that that means that the latent conflict is re-emerging. Uh and the Civil War was a similar situation. The the uh the only way to ameliorate the conflict between the northern and southern modes of production was a continued expansion on the terms of the south, but that, over time, became too too existentially threatening to uh, the northern political system and, and, and economic system. That's why I often wonder, if the Whigs had gotten in there after William Henry Harrison had died, say William Henry Clay becomes president instead of John Tyler, and you have a Whig government government in the aftermath of the 1837 panic, sort of reorienting politics away from expansion and towards internal improvement, that perhaps you don't have that headlong dash to the Pacific, uh, and the eventual annihilation of the South, I don't know someone says the slavery was the only system that could make the South economically competitive with the north. that is true because it was it was it was it was the it's the land that allows for uh for um you know, massive profit through the the sale of uh, cash crops. But the thing is, why the fuck are they competing? It's one country. The whole notion of the of their of them being in competition arose from the historical accident of uh, of the states coming in as sort of e- equals rather than as it emerging as a, as a, uh, as like a, a whole, uh, a whole political unit. But regional conflict between regional ruling classes has to, at some point, be sublimated. And that was the project of European, uh, centralization. The creation of, like, the, the creation of the, uh, of absolutist monarch model of, like, the early modern era, you know, like Louis XIV. That was not at the expense of, like, the regular French citizens. It was at the expense of local barons. It was at the expense of regional power. And that was true everywhere that, uh, that centralized authority emerged in Europe. How radical were the German immigrants in Missouri during the War and Reconstruction? They were certainly more radical than the fucking regular white people who lived in Missouri, that's for sure. Uh, the Germans were responsible for Missouri uh, staying in the Union. Uh, it was German militia that drove the uh, pro-secession uh, forces out of St. Louis at the beginning of the war and uh, denied them the ability to, to join the Confederacy in the first place. And, yeah, uh, the the German immigrants of of Missouri, but also Ohio, Wisconsin, uh, they were, Pennsylvania, they were more class conscious, certainly, than uh, native-born northern uh, forces for the most part because many of them had come from they had they had fled like uh absolutism uh and specifically a lot of them had fled the uh destruction of like the artisan class by the industrial revolution and they he came to america to try to reassert like artisan rights uh which put them in conscious conflict not with not just Eastern banks, but also large landowners. Like part of the problem of class consciousness, or at least as the conflict of of the part of the problem of uh, native white Americans seeing the slave power for what it was, is that they did not have that uh, that instinctive conflict with large landowners in the South. Northern Northerners didn't, anyway. Like They might have seen slavery as, as a competing labor system, but they did not see themselves in any way as personally oppressed by the large landowners of the South. Whereas for a lot of these Germans, when they saw the big landowners of the South, they thought of the Junkers. They thought of the Junkers of Pr- Prussia who overweened the, the the German uh, Confederation at that point. And, and, and uh, were the were an occupying foreign force in most of the Rhineland, which is lar- which is where many of the German Catholic immigrants came from. So when they saw the fancy lads and their with their dueling and their and their fake uh, Walter Scott cosplay, they saw the face of their own exploitation and their own uh, alienation. Fuck you. I'll pronounce it how I want. Junker? That's stupid. I'm, a, it's, I'm an American. I'm calling it Junker. Kick you in the Junker. There's no such thing as native white Americans? Okay, tell that to them. Good God. Get out of here. Give me a break. Talking are talking about it's like self- communities, at, by, through their own self-conception. They thought of themselves as Americans. Yes, Muncher with uh, Bernd von Munchausen. I haven't read the new Matt Karp article yet. I'm looking forward to it. His election analysis is always absolute fire. So I'm sure it'll be great. I don't actually... Someone asked about the counterfactual uh, 1848. That's not one where I really feel like there was a lot of uh, possibilities outside of what actually happened. Uh, that was really. That's why would I have read that? I don't. Why would I, all right, um, because it was a a a movement of people who had no co- common cause. That there was no unity at all. And in and and you can't even say that unity could have come through struggle the way that it might have happened and was happening to some degree for the course of the Civil War, because there was no struggle to unify through. It was always piecemeal, haphazard, uh, the con the uh, spontaneous, uh, unmarshaled and unled, uh, and it was a con- it was a continent wide emergence of. Uh, more than anything, bourgeois insistence upon, uh, like, the liberal state. And as that meant a lot of coalition building with, like, early forms of working class organization. But once again, the working class in practice was still very much in its infancy at that point in Europe. The majority of uh, workers who rebelled in the cities of Europe during 1848 were not uh, wage- Workers for say, they were mostly artisans who were being squeezed by the, the like the imposition of free trade and, and uh and the uh you know concentration of capital which was still which was early but was still was still pressing them it was essentially a uh a uh yeah it was a combination of a new urban small bourgeois fighting with a sort of pre-capitalist, uh, allying with a pre-capitalist artisan class, and on an, ad hoc, on an ad hoc basis, mostly organized around questions of nationalism and language. Uh, and in such a situation, I really don't think that there, there, there are way too many things that would have to go drastically differently in order to have the overall contours of that event change in any significant way. maybe well, the idea that the American Revolutionary War was the Second English Civil War. Kevin Phillips talks about that in a really interesting book called The Cousins War, uh, which where he essentially says that the Revolutionary the English Civil War, the Revolutionary War, and the Civil War are all one long conflict in the Anglosphere between uh, landowners, a, la- a feudal landowning cl- uh ruling class and an emergent merchant. Uh, middle class, which would eventually take over from feudalism, and that the, those three wars are essentially the wars that, over the course of those uh, three hundred years, saw feudalism fully overthrown and replaced by uh, capitalism. and I think that there's a lot to that. And his main argument is, is that the social basis of the two sides in all three of those wars is basically the same. The English Civil War, obviously, you can't say that this is true completely. You know, there were examples, there were counterexamples on each side, but it was broadly a battle between uh, emergent urb- urban merchants and big landowners. The The roundheads, the, the Puritan side were city dwellers, were merchants, and uh, the... The Cavaliers were the large feudal land owning class. Then the Civil, the Revolutionary War is essentially a battle between uh, the most industrious and most religiously uh, effusive of those uh, merchants going to the United States, creating essentially their own country, uh, and then going to war with uh, a homeland that was still largely controlled within itself uh, by the large landowning old feudal order. Although, of course, there were plenty of, you know, the, the Whigs at that point were already like the merchant party. They were the urban party within that. And they were, by the way, the people who were most likely to be sympathetic to the United States. Uh, William Pitt, uh, whose Pittsburgh is named after, was a, Wh- a Whig politician who supported the, uh, the colonists. Uh, and then the Civil War is, of course, the culmination of that on the home, uh, fully in the United States. Uh, and in every and once and here you have the large the, the 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 neo-feudal the attempt to like the attempt was essentially in the South to recreate the uh, the old feudal order uh, in the New World, conflicting with. Uh, the new, the merchant state, the industrial merchant state of the North, and like these battles are, are, are a war in the place where capitalism is emerging in its in its like most effective and uh, durable form. Out of sort of a feudal loam, but that process is not a a fast or uh, decisive one. It is a it is a dialectical process. It is existing forms of power negotiating with emergent forms of power through politics, and when politics fails through warfare. But at every point, uh, the victory was made, was won by uh capitalists at the expense of the feudal order and by the end of it the feudal order had been broken the mule feudal guys in the revolution did not mostly side with the united with uh, the revolution that's not true the reason that cornwall marched south uh after taking after they took uh uh New York is because there was much more loyalist sympathy in the South amongst the large landowners. Now, guys like Washington and Jefferson, of course, were pro uh, um, were pro revolution, but that was not true broadly among the uh, the large landowning class in the South. They tended to be more loyal, more Tory. Uh, guys like Washington, the reason that they were for the union is because, uh, you know, have you ever noticed it's mostly guys from Virginia, the state that's closest to the, the Northern, uh, merchant capitals. That's whose economies are most tied in there. Those were the people who were the most, who were the large landowners of the South were most like, most likely to support, uh, the Patriot side. Washington, George Washington was a, uh, was absolutely a um, even though he was a landowner he had the mind of a fucking merchant he 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 was his entire life was consumed with the notion of uh advancement of 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 social and monetary success which are antithetical uh values to the decadent uh land based urban ruling elite who were beaten largely because their social order looked down upon the sort of striving that people like Washington made their lives around, and part of the and the reason for that is that Washington did not come from a large from a uh, a family of huge like noble birth. He came from a middling class of uh, of uh, of landowners and uh, clergy actually who came to America and immediately started gr- grinding he was he was he from a long line of grinders uh which is not true of the a lot of the la- large landowners uh of the south who supported uh supported the king and the thing that in that book by the way that will that Phillips gets really into that reflects what Foner's talking about is that in every region there was a conflict between upcountry poor settlers and the settled uh like Delta plantation region settlers. Uh and where and who had whatever politic the politics of the uh of the elite were the upcountry poors had the opposite. So wherever there was hegemonic support for the uh patriot cause among the local elite, the local uh smallholders and poor people poor whites were Tories, and wherever the large, uh, large landowners and large elites were Tories, the local smallholders and poor people were Patriots. And the challenge, the challenge that Reconstruction presented, was the challenge of knitting together these dispossessed groups into uh, a political coalition. And that did not happen. And the fact that it didn't happen is why uh, why the Yankee Leviathan ended up becoming uh, completely captured by uh, the emerging industrial robber baron elite. Yes, and that's the other thing about Virginia, is that it was the largest of the colonies in population. Uh, and it was also very interested in expansion westward, which put it in direct competition with uh, England after 18, the 1763 Proclamation, which forbade uh, settlement beyond the Appalachians. And guys like George Washington had direct financial interest in seeing those lands explored, settled, and sold, because land speculation was a huge uh, potential revenue source. Oh, the impeachment trial. Who fucking gives a shit? Who? Fuck? Why or how could you care? And I'm, I understand that some people hear you say that and they think, oh, you're being an edge lord. You're not taking it seriously enough. And I understand, I don't want to make people, I, I, I don't want to feel like, oh, it's not a big deal. It was pretty fucking wild when people rushed the Senate. And like, that is kind of wild that that happened. And that the president told people to do it. That is, that is a new shift. That's a new phase. I understand that. But this particular uh, thing, th- this particular process the impeachment trial after the guy's out of office, it really does feel like more than anything, it is a emotional uh, pressure release. It is a way for people to have their feelings validated and go through their trauma and then sort of heal about it. And if you want to do that, if you have the trauma and you feel like that's helpful, that's fine. And if you feel like watching this helps you do that, that's fine. But expecting anybody who who does not feel that trauma that they have to join with you in this spectacle, that's what I don't understand. And that's where I refuse to go along with it. Because everyone knows what's going to happen. There is no amount of eloquence, there is no amount of uh, persuasive evidence that could be presented that will get a conviction out of this process. There are not enough Republicans who want to lose their next election, basically, and so they're not going to do it. They will not happen. And with that in mind, I honestly wonder for a lot of these people who insist that this is a very important thing, don't you worry about that fact? Don't you worry about the fact that this horrible transgression is going to go down in history as having been validated by the deliberative process of the Senate? The only way this thing makes sense as a political project is if you are really convinced that that capital breach is going to be the thing that destroys the Republican Party. That the that the center of gravity of American politics is going to shift away from Republicans because they refused to condemn this thing fully. And I think that's the only kind of that's the kind of thing you can only believe if you really do live in a bubble. If you and and of course, no one is more bubbled than these fucking dipshits in Washington. And and I think even more importantly, nobody is more invested in shifting politics away from real stakes and material interests than the Democrats either. Capitalism did replace feudalism Not in the sense that, because people are pointing out, like we're going back, to, we're going towards something that is going to be neo-feudalist, techno-feudalism, and doesn't that mean that feudalism never went away? A mode of production is a bunch of things. It's a bunch of social concepts, and the thing is, is that feudalism had at its at its social base an understanding of the world that is not the same as capitalism. The capitalism. A set, the liberal, liberal subjectivity, is not feudal; it is different. And so, in the, since now, liberal subjectivity is hegemonic. Feudalism is gone. Now, if capitalism is replaced with this system of like feudal obligations enforced through technological means, not through social means. You could say that, like, as a mere um, mechanism of extraction, that you have something that resembles feudalism. But its social basis is completely different. The the social... The undergirding social logic is one of capitalist individualism. And to say that, and that means, and so whatever comes out of that will maintain that, will maintain that social reality. I mean, if you really want to go back far enough, like it's always been a war between masters and servants, and masters have always won. Like the masters have always won. Uh, the only thing that changes is the is the rationale and conditions and social basis of that mastery. Like when the when the bourgeois overthrew capitalism, it was not liberation. It was not human liberation, it was not the subject being, uh, being liberated, it was one group of rulers being replaced with another, and a new justification for their rule. Was there anything progressive about the American Revolution? Yes. Like it's you cannot have the possibility for socialism until you have capitalism first, demolishing feudal the feudal order. Right, socialism is a shadow form of capitalism. It is, it is only conceivable in the real context of capitalism and capitalist relations that allows socialism to emerge as a, a conception. Uh, like the freedom of, like the, 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 the liberation the, of, of a feudal order, of a pre industrial feudal, feudal order, is essentially a regression to tribal self sufficiency. And then capitalism gives birth to socialism as, as a as its as a, a culmination. Well, see, that's the thing about Russia and China is that they really weren't supposed to be where, where, where socialist revolution happened. They really weren't modern capitalist societies that had, had, like, that had reached the point of, uh, of contradiction that could be resolved through, through socialism. Yeah, like, I'm more and more come to the idea that I kind of think that once the, once the German Revolution failed, the Bolsheviks should have made a deal with the peasants. I think maybe Bukharin was right in the whole debate about what to do about industrialization and what to do about the peasantry. Because the, the entire premise of the Bolshevik Revo- Bolshevik Revolution has been had been as the opening act of a world revolution. Yeah, but would, have, would World War II have happened the same way? See, that's... There was no... When Bukharin was arguing for this stuff, the Nazis didn't exist yet. They were not in charge. Like, the, you, you're looking back through the lens and saying, yes, but they needed to do all that to win World War II. That's not historically grounded. That's trying to, like, pick a side and win an argument. And yeah, it's like people love to give the Soviets credit for, for beating the Nazis, but they essentially handed the keys of the world over to the United States, who, are just, who were where the Nazis got all their ideas from. Explicitly, Hitler looked at Manifest Destiny and was taking notes the whole time. The thing is, is that there's nothing that's inevitable. Yeah. Nothing is inevitable. In retrospect, when things have solidified into history, you can see why maybe something else couldn't have happened. But those, those, uh, those superpositions don't solidify until the moment of action, until things occur that can, that can, that can be looked back on. So, like, it, the degree to which people turned Marxism into a teleology of inevitable victory, which I think, honestly, is more of a 20th century thing than a thing people still think, uh, that was a way to to justify themselves, to justify their actions, to justify their adherence to uh, a regime as, like, the sole uh, uh, repository of, you know, like the, of socialism as a project... There's no inevitability to any of this. But there is within like when within capitalism there is the potential for socialism. That's just the fact. That's the truth. And then you have to analyze that question. And okay, if you if that's true and socialism is superior, then how do we fucking get there? You cannot assume the inevitability of anything. They didn't have the specter of catastrophic climate collapse, but they did have a real belief that they were all going to get killed in a nuclear war. People forget that. Like, people who want to be doom-pilled now about, like, climate, there was, for the, among educated people in the, all of the world, there was a very strong belief that any given day, uh, a nuclear war might happen that would destroy all life on Earth. And that now is so receded into the backdrop of people's minds and been replaced with climate doomerism that the fact that this thing that was very close, I mean, it wasn't just the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's uh, Abel Archer. Uh, there's, I mean, there were two Soviet uh, military officers who had it in their in their hands to cause the nuclear war, once, during, once in the 80s and once during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And both times they said, No, and their human decision is what saved humanity. It was nothing having to do with our systems of mutually assured destruction and our beautifully crafted uh, defense doctrines. It was human choice. It was human agency in the moment. That's how fluid and how contingent things are. Petrov. And of course, it could happen. And honestly, it'd be kind of funny if we end up getting a nuclear war anyway due to climate change conflict. That's totally possible. But that sure as shit wasn't what people in, like, 1963 were thinking was going to happen. I think you'll... I'm just saying that to, to say that... that ch- basing your actions in the present... On um, an assumed social outcome, either good or bad, in the future, is always going to just end up being in practice uh, self-indulgence because you're you're at, you're not responding to reality. you're making a reality to operate off of. And the question is, are you make what are you making that reality for? And I think if you're assuming annihilation, The only reason that you would want to make that reality and live as that reality is if you want an excuse, if you want an excuse to not do things that are difficult, to not sacrifice, to not build your spirit, because what's the point? But every day you do that and you're still here, you're hurting yourself and everyone around you. We are, in fact, already dead. I mean, like, we're all, we all died already. It's like, your life, in the grand scheme of things, is is around down to zero. Like, it's already happened, and this society is already dead. But what comes after it is not known. It can't be known. It's not blackpilled. God damn it. I'm saying you can't know. You cannot know. Like if, you te- if you sell yourself, you do. It's not because you've studied everything and you've come to the correct conclusion. Because you don't have enough information. Nobody has that information. That information is not accessible. No matter how much the fantasy of online, uh, uh, of, the, of the information superhighway and, and uh, spinning around the world and the idea that you can reach out and grab all the knowledge and pull it under yourself. Even if you could do that, you still have to sort it. You still have to prioritize it, and those choices are not being made objectively. They're being made from either love, either from a desire to to see love expressed in the world, or uh, out of a desire to selfishly maintain a a life of of indulgence, whatever that means. Because you know, you can it can be miserable but it can be a misery that is familiar and therefore so- soothing and comforting. Oh, and on this somebody asked about antinatalism. Uh I I'm fully against that. You have to believe in a future, even if it's not going to happen. You have to believe in a future. If you don't want kids fucking because you don't like the idea of sacrificing time for someone else, okay. But acting like you're doing them a favor by not bringing it into the world is bullshit. I'm sorry. Yeah, First Reformed is a great film and a movie I didn't really appreciate uh, as much when I first saw it because of how enmeshed I was in the very pathologies that uh, Ethan Hawke's character presents. Uh, like He's going to blow up the Koch brothers, but not because he wants, it's going to make anything better. It's because he wants to go out on his own terms. It's because he has given up on, on connecting to anyone or anything outside of himself. But, of course, that doesn't mean anyone is obligated to have kids, like fucking freak psychos like Rouse Dothit, Dothit think. But if the choice needs to be, it needs to be interrogated at the personal level, not fobbed off on some ha- cack-handed and self-serving analysis of the geopolitical world or the amount of fucking carbon in the atmosphere. That's made up. That's not real. carbon is not made up but your idea of what's going to happen is made up i'm sorry has to be you don't know as much as you think you do i don't none of us do besides we might not even have to worry about the question of having kids if if that shit about fucking like plastic fucking up endocrine systems is is if that if that keeps happening at the rate it is then you won't even have to make the choice. Everyone will just be sterilized, children of men's style. And then, hey, that'll solve global warming. So then what were you worried about? Because, like, there you go. There's two things that you can look at the data, and they're both very compelling cases for human extinguishment through climate change, and also the fact that we might not be able to uh, reproduce in 20 years because everybody's balls are filled with fucking uh, microplastic. Both very compelling. You can fixate on both of them. You can't know either way. And they conflict with one another. One of them could solve the other problem. Either way, you still got to fucking live. You still got to be alive. Nobody should be telling people to have children or not have children. That's weird. What, who are you? Shut the fuck up. That's just a weird thing to make political. And it speaks more to some sort of psychosexual thing, honestly, or, or, or a, comp- a compensatory thing, than, uh, than any real, earnest, good faith engagement with politics. Now, yeah, maybe the the garbage, the, the, the algae bloom will eat all the CO2. You don't know. I think the most important thing to just remember about all that stuff is that you Cannot filter your underlying spiritual attitude, your underlying uh, matrix uh, of reward from your analysis. All right, I'm going to wrap it up. So next week, I'm gonna read the, we're going to read the, the next two chapters, chapters two and three of Reconstruction. I will have some notes this t- next time, which I didn't do this time. Sorry about that. So we're going to go through it because I'm reading it on my phone, actually. I've got the Kindle app on my phone, which means I can't look at it when I'm talking here. So I'm going to have to start taking notes, a thing I didn't really realize until today, which uh, my bad. But so chapters two and three for next week. Reconstruction by Eric Foner. Bye-bye.